Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Story time. I was backpacking the River to River Trail alone and was staying the night at One Horse Gap in Shawnee Forest. I set up my campsite and did a little exploring around the area walking along a cliff edge. I came back, started a fire, and ate some crappy freeze-dried meal. It's almost 10 and I'm looking at the stars and I hear from the area I was exploring earlier this loud animal noise, it sounded like a monkey howling. I'm not an expert in animal sounds, but I do know most of the sounds in that area, since I hiked them quite frequently, and I had no idea what it was. I went into my tent shortly after and started to go to sleep when I heard, probably within 100 feet of my tent, 
A sound like a single big footstep. No worries, probably a deer. Then, I heard it again a few minutes later and again a few minutes later. Then I heard several steps back to back getting closer. My mind was racing what it could be, but since I was alone I was prone to freak out a little more. So I just told myself to calm down it's just a deer. Then I hear the noise of something dropping on the rock I'm camping on. I'm on the side of a small cliff and the tree line is about 10 feet away, then I hear it again. It sounded like rock hitting rock, like the rocks were getting thrown at me. It happened a few more times and then one hit my tent. At that moment I'm convinced it's a Samsquanch. I peek out the netting at the top of my tent and scream as loud as I can hey. After that I didn't hear anything, rocks or footsteps. And I just wanted to go to sleep so I wouldn't freak out anymore. I told myself it just had to be acorns falling from the trees and eventually got to sleep. So the next morning I got out of my tent and inspected the ground. There are no acorns or pine cones or anything but rocks on the ground. I'm still telling myself it couldn't have been the rocks because they would have to have been thrown. But I pick up a rock throw it in the air and let it hit and it was the exact same noise I heard the night before. I packed it up and noped out of there. I was talking on my cell at the end of my sidewalk by the street when I turned around facing my house and saw this huge black human-like bird thing gliding without a noise coming from the east maybe the distance would be like three streets over but about maybe five blocks down. When I saw this I was stunned and stared at it trying to figure out what it was and then I realized it wasn't anything I've ever seen. I ran into the house and yelled at my husband and my grown son to get out here quick. They came but seemed like forever and they looked and saw it too. When they saw it the thing was like the a few streets over and then disappeared behind the big trees. When we saw it we all said that no one would believe us, but I have recently been talking about it because it has bothered me so much. I've lived in this neighborhood all my life and I can remember three UFO sightings since I was five and all the sightings were in this neighborhood or around Stinson Field Airport. I never came forward about them because people think you've lost your ever-loving mind until recently when others I've spoke with shared their experiences. I have other stories but this one is the most recent and I was wondering if anyone has ever seen this thing. It is silent like it was a glider but I could see the body was exactly like a man a very large man. I live in Sweden and a few years back I lived with my parents whose house is in a small village in the middle of the woods, so there is plenty of wildlife around. It was in the middle of the winter and pretty much the whole village had gathered at a hut down by the lake to grill and have a nice time. It was about 8pm and it was dark as shit and I wanted to go home and play Skyrim, so I left and began the 2 kilometer walk home only having my phone to light the path, after 1 kilometer I heard something. It was a deep panting. It was way too deep to be a neighboring dog and I remembered someone mentioning earlier that wolves had been seen near the village. I tried to keep my cool and kept walking in the same pace, trying to spot whatever was running a few meters away from me, breathing loudly, but the light was too weak to spot anything. At this point I was freaking out a little inside and picked up a large tree branch and carried it with me like a weapon, just in case. The thing ran beside me for a hundred meters, then disappeared. 
When I hadn't heard it for a few seconds I ran as fast as I could the few hundred remaining meters. I never got to know if it was a wolf, Bigfoot, crawler or any other cryptid or not. Because it began to snow soon after, covering the tracks. And after checking with the neighbors I know it wasn't a dog. That's probably the most scared I've ever been. I encountered a huge, brilliant red light while finishing my rounds as a security guard. It hovered above some trees near a construction site. Curiosity compelled me to investigate further, leading me closer to the site. There, I discovered a large saucer-shaped object with a hump in the center bottom section, surrounded by a vibrant red light. As I approached, a low whirring sound reached my ears, and the object descended landing on a tripod-like gear. To my surprise, a stairway-like protrusion extended towards the ground. A figure emerged from the craft and began descending. The humanoid stood at an impressive height of 8 feet, with long, dangling arms, a massive torso, and short, stump-like legs. Its face was elongated and oval-shaped, with two tear-shaped eyes that captured my attention. An eerie sensation gripped me as the creature moved towards me with high, loping steps. I felt a strong humming inside my skull and caught a whiff of an odor reminiscent of rotten eggs. Just then, a passing car on the road behind me caught the creature's attention. It abruptly retreated and swiftly boarded the object, which rapidly took off and vanished into the sky. Randy Morganson was an experienced backcountry ranger, having worked 28 seasons in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. He was intimately familiar with the High Sierra Wilderness, having explored it more than any other ranger. Dedicated to his job, Randy took his responsibilities seriously. On a summer day in 1996, Randy left a note on his tent, stating that he would be away for two or three days. Strangely, the date on the note was June 21st, not July 21st. Carrying only his backpack, he departed from near Bench Lake, leaving behind his Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum at camp. Unfortunately, Randy never returned, and he was never seen alive again. Randy Morganson was one of many seasonal rangers who had been reapplying for their jobs every summer, with no medical benefits or retirement plans. They were a tight-knit group, referred to as the 14ers, as they had been returning to the park for over a decade, some even for two decades. Their reward was not monetary, but rather the beauty of the sunsets they witnessed. If a ranger were to die in service, their family would receive a one-time payment of $100,000, but no pension. Randy had written in his 1973 McClure Meadow log, expressing his longing for adventure and the freedom to find his own path. Randy's life took a downturn as the 1996 season approached. His wife, Judy, decided not to join him on backcountry adventures after he had an affair with a fellow ranger named Lolinus. Randy's spirits were low, and he questioned the worth of his job after years of service. The divorce papers from Judy arrived, adding to his emotional burden. Randy's friends noticed his mood decline, and he confided in them about his thoughts of S. Then, on July 20, 1996, he contacted his colleague and his wife on the radio, 
asking trivial questions. Their conversation abruptly ended with Randy stating, I won't be bothering you two anymore. The next day, Randy left his camp without a trace. The community was haunted by the mystery of Randy's disappearance. The circumstances left many questions unanswered. Was it an accident? Foul play? Or something more inexplicable, like an encounter with aliens? The search and rescue efforts were relentless, with rangers scouring the area for any sign of Randy. The search leader utilized a computer program called Cassie, Computer-Aided Search Information Exchange, to track the effectiveness of each segment searched. However, weeks passed with no leads, and morale began to decline. The rangers were determined to find their beloved colleague before it was too late. Ranger Rick Sanger, a second-year backcountry ranger, hiked through the night to Randy's duty station at Bench Lake. There, he discovered a note confirming Randy's overdue status from a cross-country patrol. Anxiety grew as everyone wondered what had happened to their veteran mentor. The investigation into Randy's disappearance uncovered two separate threats of violence made against him. However, neither person had an alibi for the time of Randy's disappearance, leaving the case without a clear suspect. Speculation ran rampant. After 13 days of searching, hope started to dwindle. Then, in a remote gorge, five years later, a worker stumbled upon fresh evidence. It was a breakthrough. Rangers were summoned, and they discovered Randy's shirt bearing his badge, his backpack, and a boot half submerged in water. Excitement turned to horror when a leg bone was found in the boot. The evidence matched Randy's reported gear. Despite the discovery, the search for answers continued. Retired Sierra Subdistrict Ranger Alden Nash believed that Randy had stumbled through a fragile snow bridge and fallen into an icy abyss, breaking his leg. He theorized that Randy's body remained hidden beneath the snow for days while search parties combed the area. Judy Morganson received a letter after Randy's disappearance, but it arrived two days later. This added confusion to the mystery. The search for Randy yielded no definitive answers, leaving his family and colleagues yearning for closure. Randy Morganson's fate remains a haunting mystery. Speculation and theories abound but the truth eludes everyone. Despite the passage of time, the unanswered questions surrounding Randy's disappearance linger, forever reminding us of his enigmatic vanishing. My nickname is Detective Mark Smith. I'm a civil servant working in the South Carolina State Park Service Police Department. Recently, while on patrol at Santee State Park, I encountered an individual who claims to be part of the Lizard Man Task Force. It was approximately midnight when dispatch had sent us to investigate reports of somebody screaming from inside the park. We immediately responded. As we neared the location where the screams were last heard, our vehicle malfunctioned, losing all power along with most electrical equipment. This forced us to continue on foot following what appeared to be abandoned tire tracks leading into a heavily wooded area. The tracks seemed to belong to a mid-sized 4x4 or SUV-type vehicle. We continued on foot as the screams, sounding like a young child pleading for help from something unknown, grew closer. Suddenly, the screams ceased, replaced by the growling sound of an unknown creature. 
I caught a glimpse of yellow eyes staring at us before it swiftly ran into the night. It took about an hour to find another officer who arrived with a tow truck to pull our car back onto the road. We then contacted dispatch to have it towed away for repair. By now, it was 2.18am, and we headed back to the station, feeling frustrated, tired, and somewhat scared. Upon our return, dispatch informed us of reports of another officer down, whom I'll call Officer James. Apparently, he had been attacked by a large unknown animal. As we rushed to the scene, more screams were heard from a nearby neighborhood. People there were having their own encounters with this creature. We split into two teams, realizing the extreme aggression and danger this creature posed. Our equipment malfunctioned, causing delays in regrouping. Fortunately, all officers were physically unharmed, but shaken. They described an eight-foot-tall creature with glowing yellow eyes, resembling a giant walking lizard. When we fired at it, the creature growled in a demonic tone and disappeared into the woods. Realizing the abnormal nature of the situation, we knew we needed to reassess our approach. We discovered massive footprints near where Officer James had been attacked. He was seriously injured and had to wait for help to arrive. That night, we first heard about the beings linked to the Lizard Man sightings, which had occurred across the state over the years. After that night, the details become hazy in my memory. However, I found myself taking a friend into Santee State Park to show him something called the Ritual Site. He believed it was connected to the Lizard Man or some sort of cult. We ventured into the woods, reaching an area where the attacks had occurred near the Ritual Site. Suddenly, Something large jumped out, with the same height and glowing eyes. It attacked my friend and knocked me unconscious in the process. When I woke up, I searched for my friend for hours, but he was nowhere to be found. Desperate, I approached a park ranger and explained what had happened. He suggested seeking more police assistance at the Santee State Park Ranger Station, as they were experiencing more encounters with this creature. When we arrived at the station, the sheriff explained that they had been receiving numerous sightings of the lizard man. It became evident that the creature was very, very real. My family has a summer house on a large remote island. Our place is in the most lightly inhabited part, and to get to it you either have to sail or fly and then either hike over extremely steep terrain, so steep that on the downhill side one has to hang onto trees and bracken and go hand over hand and half slide down, for about 3 hours or travel for around 40 minutes in a little open topped boat at high tide. There are no roads or utilities. There are some other houses around but they are far apart and one has to walk through thick bush on tiny narrow tracks for at least 10 to 15 minutes to get to a neighbor. There are no lights and while the stars and moon are very bright, on a cloudy night you literally cannot see your hand in front of your face. It's incredibly remote and mostly incredibly idyllic. Long childhood summers running wild through the forest and playing in the streams. There are some incredibly creepy things about it though. Story 1. There is a grave at the entrance to the river. It's been there since the 1800s and is a light-colored stone with a white picket fence around it. The woman buried there was one of the original settlers of the area. When I was a child, the grave had fallen into disrepair. 
Strange things started happening all around the houses in the area. Doors slamming without a breeze, funny noises, taps turning on and off by themselves, little things going missing and weird problems with boat motors with no explanation. After a while, the community got sick of it and someone suggested it had something to do with the grave. After laughing it off, everyone decided it wouldn't hurt to clean up the grave. They went out one day, weeded, scrubbed the stone, painted the fence, said a few words and all the weird happenings stopped. Story 2. There are places that just feel wrong all over the area. There are no dangerous creatures on the island other than potentially wild pigs and it's always the same places. It makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck to walk through them, even in groups, and more than a few times I've sprinted, dangerously, on narrow, dangerous tracks when walking by myself at night just because I'm freaked as hell by the sense of fear and dread. And I'm almost 30 and not at all afraid of the dark under normal circumstances. It's not just humans either, I got a new dog. I was walking along a track with him in the middle of the day in bright sunshine and we were maybe one minute from one of these creepy places. Suddenly he stopped dead and he tensed up, stared right down the trail at the creepy area and started growling and barking and backing away. He got to the point where he was pressed up against my legs, tail down. As I was reaching down to touch him he let out a sound that was crossed between a scream and a bark, ran around me and dashed off back the way we'd come. I turned around and started sprinting too. I found him at the house cowering under a bench. Ever since, he's absolutely refused to even go to the start of that track. When I was a kid, 10 to 12 maybe, there was this really old creepy house just round the corner from me. I lived in a fairly nice area and this house was just old and had stained net curtains and a cracked front door and all the works. The guy worked irregular shifts so nobody ever really saw him, but other kids would tell stories that they saw him coming home in the early hours with dead animals and bloody knives. Obviously, the rest of us laughed it off as BS. Anyway, one summer we were all bored and decided to sneak past the factories round the back of his house and onto a patch of grass to try to get a look through his back garden. To get there you had to sneak past these buildings, through a bunch of trees and then through a mesh fence that we had to climb over. Not an accessible place at all, and no other way to get to it. Four of us made the trip, and took turns to bunk each other up to get a look over the fence. I went last and could see my other friends were creeped the f out. There were two dead cats hanging from his tree by their tails with a bunch of dolls heads tied up off the branches and swinging around in the breeze. I could just about see into the house and there were no lights on and a few candles lit in a circle on his floor. My friend swears he saw a limp human leg, foot in the doorway but none of the rest of us did. Just as I got a good look, the gate opened and the guy came strolling out casual as f, with a bloody machete in his hand. We ran, he chased. We all leapt over the mesh fence and then he was gone. Never saw him again. I still have no idea what he was up to and we never told anyone for fear of getting in trouble for what we did. Prior to joining the US Navy, my grandfather took me aside and told me several stories of his time spent in the Navy during World War II. 
It was his way of ensuring I knew what I was getting into. My grandfather was a weapons technician too, WT2, aboard the destroyer USS Mori DD-401 from 1942-1945 and manned a 538 caliber cannon. He survived Pearl Harbor, Battle over Tarawa, Battle of Midway and the invasion of Luzon to name a few. With only a small shrapnel wound to his leg in all that time. I'd like to share one of those stories of his though as it just blows my mind to this day. The Mori was escorting an HMAS Australian vessel to Espiritu Santo as Japanese forces were still active in the area and Allied forces were actively attempting to keep Guadalcanal and the Solomons secure after previous weeks of battle with the Japanese forces. The night was clear, with every star in the sky. The wind was so low that you could hear gulls fishing off in the distance and the wakes splashing against the hulls of the ships. The air felt like Hawaii in spring and all you wanted to do was bask in the moonglow. Suddenly, voice radio communications from nearby Allied island bases starting chirping away with information about visual confirmation of enemy subs in the area to the north. Soon after, all on deck order was given and everyone was forced stand ready. A team was assigned light patrol and they began panning around, looking for subs. Not more than two hours goes by with no visual contact made, they are finally given order to stand down and return to shut-eye duty. A few hours before daybreak, contacts from Nendo Island start coming on voice comms warning that potentials are flying around in the area just five miles south of Mori's escort position. Already worried that they may have been targeted by Japanese subs from their bow, they now have to contend with potential aerial assault and everyone is called to stand ready once more. Engines are killed, emergency lights activated and orders given to kill all lights. My grandfather, manning his light is immediately ordered to put that candle out. And pushes the searchlight straight down into the water, turning it off. When they finally stop moving, the crew can hear the low tone humming of several planes passing parallel to their position. Everyone holds their breath and pretends to pretty much not exist. Hoping the enemy doesn't make visual contact with the ships. So for a good long 45 minutes, everyone just sits there. Until they can no longer make audible contact with their enemy forces they hoped would pass. Finally, after almost two hours of nothing, they are given the go-ahead to start the engines and return to the passage. My grandfather flicks his cigarette port side and clicks on his searchlight, still pointing into the water. What he says he saw next aged him and the two others with him a good ten years. Below, where the searchlight sat focused in the water, lay an eyeball the size of a basketball. Sitting there, staring straight back at him from about ten feet underwater. The next three seconds lasted minutes in his mind as he watched this silvery disc of an eye look straight through him. Finally, the first of the engines started in what seemed like forever and the beast that it was broke surface for a brief moment in order to dive deep. Even before people acknowledged giant squid existed, before they were ever caught on camera, my grandfather believed because he had seen one within 20 feet of his face. In my eight years of service, I had heard many stories of such things and even own a few teeth pulled from the rubber liner of a ship, but never had any such experiences myself. Adding that experience in lieu of the drama of war and you can get a sense for the true terror it would invoke. My grandfather, 
who passed away at 93 this July told me this one growing up. Thanks to all that served and thanks for reading. This incident happened to me when I was a boy. My sister, myself and my parents lived in a small trailer out in Connorsville, which is a little ways out from Bardo. My sister and I shared a room with a bunk bed and there was always something kind of off about the room. There was one night when my mother came in while my sister and I had been asleep for probably three or four hours. She woke us both up and said I don't know what it is, but you two need to come to sleep on the floor your dad and mine's room. There's just something not right. So we hated to but we went in there and we fixed the bed on the floor and my mom, she went through the house and checked the locks and everything, and everything was fine. So, we all laid down and I'd say an hour and a half later, there were sounds at the front door and we heard the front door open. My mom was up, I guess, and my dad and sister both were asleep. I was still awake, and we heard pitter-patter, almost sounded like children running in the house. This was about 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning. The way the trailer was set up, you had a door that connected to the hallway and to my parents' bedroom and one into the bathroom. So we heard these things run into the bathroom. You could hear them giggling and then it was just the weirdest sound. It didn't sound like a usual childish giggle. My mom thought she had locked both of the doors that connected to the bathroom and to the hallway. Well, the door that connected to the hallway, it opened slowly and this little short thing peeked its head through. Pardon my French, but it scared the hell out of me. It looked almost like it was wearing a hood on part of its head. It was probably about two and a half to three feet tall. And the face, it was a. The only way I can describe it was it looked almost like a gargoyle. As far as the face, deformed like some of them can actually get. It was grotesque and it just giggled, putting its hand on its mouth almost like, you know, I didn't mean to disturb you. It just stood there for a minute and I'm about to have a panic attack, you know, sitting there, staring at that thing. I couldn't move. I felt like I was in shock. And my mom, she didn't move or say anything, you know. I didn't think she knew I was awake. And after a few minutes it went back in the bathroom with the other ones and shut the door. They were in there to close to daylight, then the door opened and then they went right back outside. I didn't tell my mom what I saw until a couple of days later. I was just too afraid that if I did, they would just come back. And I told her and she told me she saw the same exact thing. Dave asks about what prompted her to go in and get the kids. That night, she had like a feeling like God was telling her to get the kids, bring them in the bedroom, they don't need to be in there. She said that's the only way she can describe it. She said she was laying there asleep and then she just woke up and that feeling just hit her harder than a brick. It felt like it was trying to make its territory known, basically we can come and go anytime we want. It was playing mind games with us, my mom and myself. The feeling I got from it was that it was not good. It was evil. I suddenly awoke, sensing a distinct presence in the bedroom. Initially, I assumed it was my daughter entering the room. Opening my eyes, I glanced towards the side of the bed, where I witnessed an entity standing in front of the wardrobe. It faced me and my sleeping wife, 
emanating a soft, dull bluish glow throughout its body. The entity possessed human-like characteristics, with a small head featuring a pointed chin and a bald, domed shape. Its thin neck supported a barrel-shaped body, while its flexible arms moved slowly in a manner reminiscent of Tai Chi movements. The glow surrounding it obscured its facial features, yet it emitted an aura of tranquility. As the entity appeared to gaze towards my daughter's room, it suddenly reacted, turning its head slightly in my direction. With a smooth motion, it extended a hand towards me, its fingers spread wide. From its palm, a pale ball of light gracefully leapt towards me in slow motion, striking me squarely between the eyes. My last memory was that surreal moment, and then I found myself in broad daylight, with the strange entity vanished. I have had disabling migraines for the past 15 years. I realized I was addicted to Xanax and Valium and anything to stop the pain and keep me functioning. Eventually I crashed. I had to stop working, I couldn't read or go into any stores. I lived downtown in big city and wore earplugs to leave my building because the noise was too much. I created a sort of isolation booth for myself. I still more or less live in it. Strangest things I've seen. No. Strangest sensations I think are more like it. I've had moments when I was so starved for human interaction but couldn't handle the stimulation, I would lay in bed holding a body pillow with blackouts drawn, earplugs in, and an eye mask just in case. Sometimes I'd lay for days. Often I didn't have enough cognitive function to feel anything but hunger. I have lain in bed and cried because I couldn't heat up a microwave meal. It is an odd sensation to be hungry, have food available, and be starving not anorexic. Incapable. The next is that I don't exist. Time doesn't exist. I forget what month I'm in. I forget what I had for breakfast or if I had breakfast. I've had bills go to collection because they Saturday and Saturday. Not procrastination, but again, my cognitive function drops low enough it's like being a zombie. When I have moments of clarity it's like being dropped in a war zone, knowing you probably don't have time to leave entirely so you strategize what the next best possible foxhole is. Not existing I forget to check my phone. I lose it. I haven't talked to anyone in days. My mind starts sort of swooping. I remember random encounters with strangers that must have been my last human contact. Vividly accounting for the head nods I made as I walked down the street toward the subway. Two drug dealers, I know them, Two college kids, bright clothes, a Latina woman standing next to me on the platform. I remember when cognizant that I was staring and she gave me a slight smile and I felt like that was such radiance. So, clearly more than just isolation. But I've learned that my brain is powerful in ways that I try to find interesting rather than frustrating. My experiences make me feel like I'm in a sort of matrix walking through people who felt as real to me as mannequins and stick to such odd schedules. If this didn't make any sense. Sorry. The witness and his cousin were out hunting near Johnson City, Tennessee. And were sitting on the side of the wall of a rather large hollow which consisted of very thick underbrush and lots of evergreen. 
a larger valley then lead first to a clearing and then on to a supposed old Indian graveyard. All of the sudden they heard the brush in the hollow below rattling and they could tell that whatever was making the sounds was rather large. The main witness was armed with a Ruger 10-22 rifle with approximately 150 rounds of ammo ready to go. Under his night vision scope he could see what appeared to be a man, but upon further inspection he realized that the man was a creature about 7-8 feet tall approximately 450 pounds. It was covered with thick black fur and was slimmer than the popular Bigfoot image, almost skinny with a neck. Also protruding on either side of its head were long tapered horns also black in color. On the top of the head also protruded a horn pointing straight up. All horns were approximately 5 to 6 inch in length and were the same dark color as the creature. The terrified witness emptied a 25 round clip into the creature and then retreated into a nearby cabin about 65 feet away. The next morning they could not find anything except for lots of spent shell casings and bullet holes on a walnut tree. He thought he had struck the creature several times. Nearby animals traps had been sprung and all the bait extracted. On a nearby ridge the witnesses located a series of tunnels made up of brush and various sizes of tree limbs, vines and leaves. They thought it could have been the lair of the beast. Afraid they returned home. I was camping in remote East Texas with four other guys. We had hiked for a couple of days and were camped in some pretty thick trees. About 20 yards down a hill was a small river which flowed into a nearby lake, which we were hoping to get to the next day. We had all gone down for sleep but myself and one other guy saw a light from down the hill, a bit to our east. We woke the others, as it looked like people and we were pretty remote. As it got closer we realized it was a base boat with a floodlight coming up the river. People that live somewhere on the lake. It is weird though, because we know they don't live up river anywhere. The river runs into some rough terrain and narrows to the point you couldn't get through with a boat. So they were just coming up the river for no reason at about 1 AM, with a floodlight, scanning both sides of the river. We stay hunkered down and get our one rifle out just in case. It's creepy, because it really does feel like they're looking for somebody on shore, but we are far enough back to not be seen if we stay laying down. As they get close, we hear a woman's voice talking. It sounds strange, like it's not a conversational way of speaking. As they get close, it sounds like she's reciting something. One guy says it's T.S. Eliot. These are backwoods people reciting T.S. Eliot into the dark forest at one in the morning from a base boat. They came by with this woman just reading this crazy shit while shining the light all over, and some giant duck dynasty looking dude silently driving the boat. Scariest part was that they passed, and never came back down river. We took turns keeping watch, although I didn't really sleep at all, then quietly slipped on down the trail in the morning, trying to hide signs we were there. We ended up cutting really wide around the lake to avoid whoever these crazy redneck poetry fans were. About 10 years ago my family and I were doing some fishing slash four-wheeling in the back country of Colorado. This are as well out of cell phone range and we have been here multiple times before. We usually split up into groups of two, 
one kid with each parent. We each have a small walkie-talkie to communicate with the other group. My mom and I got out of the jeep and proceed to start fishing in the creek and not three minutes later we get a bear and bear cub by the river we are coming back to pick you up over the radio which is nothing new, we see bears quite often. So my mom and I hightail it back to the road and hop in the jeep. We drive a few miles up river before we decide to head out again and fish. Well, we have our full day of fishing and start to head out of the area and on the way out about two or three feet off of the road is an aspen tree stump that had been chainsawed of at some point. Standing on the stump was the bear cub. Just hanging out playing on its own. We don't see mama bear so we decide to drive by it. Even if we did see her we would just take off down the road. So I have a disposable camera and we stop for a quick moment to take a few pictures of it. I am literally close enough to touch it. We all stare in amazement because we have never seen a bear cub this close. So naturally we develop the pictures. The pictures have the background, the tree stump, the road, everything in perfect focus, but no bear. Everyone in my family saw the bear and we have no idea what happened. We all refer to it as the ghost bear. I lived with my grandparents and my mother. Grandparents were out of town on a trip and my mom had left for work an hour prior at 11 p.m. She works graveyard shifts, this was not the first time I'd stayed at home alone but it wasn't a regular thing. You'd think I would have fun with it and make whatever food I want, browse online without being watched, watch whatever on TV and live the dream as a kid with freedom. I'm the opposite. On high alert, watching Disney Channel with the phone next to me. Eventually I start to relax and get up to walk to the kitchen. Something is off. My basement door is always shut to avoid cold air coming into the main floor and it's cracked. Me being me, I panic and freeze in my tracks. I keep staring at it and see it move back and forth for a few seconds and see it slam shut. I freak the F out and run to get my flats and shoot out the front door. With my keys in the middle of winter, snow falling and it's fairly windy, I ran full speed down the street and around the corner to a family friend's house. I bang on the door and they answer and ask if someone chasing me and I said I don't know but I think someone's in my house. I'm beyond terrified so I called my mom from their phone and explained what happened while crying and struggling to breathe. I stayed over there that night and my mom picked me up when she got off work at around 7 in the morning. We go back to the house and investigate. Nothing weird when we open the door to go downstairs but at the end of the stairs there's a water trail on the floor. Leads to the back door to outside and it's cracked open. It's unlocked but it can't be unlocked from the outside because it's a sliding latch and it didn't seem forced or broken so it must have been left open. There's footprints outside the door that are kind of covered from fresh snow but you can tell someone was there and broke in. My mom didn't call the cops although I wish she would have but she's not one to look into things. I could break my wrist and she'd tell me to ice it and move on. Anyway, we called my grandparents and told them what happened. They were worried and glad I was okay. When they got back my grandpa installed a nice dead bolt on the door. I'm 20 now and I'm still scared in my own apartment at night but I made sure to get a place with nice security and made friends with the neighbors in case of emergencies. 
First story is about me heading to my middle school bus stop. I lived about three to four small blocks away from my stop in a small town. I had loads of energy when I was younger so I would get up at 5.30 am. To get ready for school and once I was finished I would just head to the bus stop to hang out. It's still pretty dark outside once I start walking, 6.30ish, and since it's a quiet town I was never really scared to walk in the dark. One morning I was on my way there just minding my business, probably following cracks on the sidewalk and I hear grunting. Fast-paced, primal grunting. I looked around for a second and made eye contact with one of the homeless men in the area and he charged after me. I was probably 4 feet 11, tiny girl with a ponytail running to my bus stop, which is marked as someone's house, and hid inside one of the bushes. It was still dark but I could make out a body walking around slowly as if he was searching for me. After a few minutes he leaves and I knock on the house's door and tell the owner what happened and he lets me stay inside, neighborhood watch homes or bus stops for kids so I was fine, until other kids get there. Told my mom, wasn't allowed to walk there alone for months. I worked in a gun shop in Houston. One day this guy comes in and asks what is the process to buy a gun if he is not a US citizen. We had to call the BATF to find out. He was a ship captain with a Panamanian passport. He needed a pistol. He had to get a letter from the Panamanian consulate and some export paperwork before he could buy it. We asked him why he would go through all this trouble. Turns out, in the middle of the Atlantic, one of the crewmen woke up the cook and asked him to make some coffee. The cook took offense and chased the guy down and cut off his arm with a machete. The cook would be on the ship on the return trip. Navy sonar technician here. I've heard weird shit all over the world. One time, while doing a deployment to Asia, we were steaming west on our way to Singapore, Irk, and it was about 17 local time, right after Chow. Me and a buddy are shooting the shit in sonar control on watch, just me and him down there, and the underwater calm starts chirping. Dolphins, no big deal, they like to ride the bow and make a bunch of noise next to the sonar array. Trust me, you get used to that shit. We continue shooting the shit, talking about stuff back home, what food we miss, that kind of thing. Suddenly we hear this really low grumble, and we actually thought someone was around with the 1MC, the ship's general announcing system, because it sounded like someone was dragging a microphone along a jacket or something. Then we realized it was coming from the underwater comms system, because sometimes a dolphin chirp would cut it out. Suddenly the grumble turned into kind of a groan, like it changed inflection. Then we hear a loud whooshing sound, the groan got really loud, then nothing. Both the groan, and more unnerving, the dolphins, were completely quiet. We checked our sensors right after, thinking maybe it was a contact, but you could tell the way the sound was traveling, by the bearing changes, that it was moving erratically. If we hadn't heard it, we would have written off the weird bearings as whales. We went active to try and see if maybe if was a sub and the bearing was something else, but we didn't see it again. That was definitely the weirdest one.
As the witness slept in her apartment she suddenly awoke feeling a strange oppressive atmosphere around her. She opened her eyes and saw a humanoid figure bending down over her. The figure was short, about 130 centimeter, and looked intently at the witness. The figure had a grayish-green pale facial complexion. It had large dark pupil-less eyes. Heavy skin folds covered the head and body of the creature. It had what appeared to be a thin beard and appeared to be elderly. A second humanoid now appeared next to the first one. This one was somewhat shorter and appeared younger, both resembled aged gnomes. Both figures then floated back from the bed and vanished. At this point what appeared to be a tennis ball-sized sphere of light appeared in their place. The sphere disappeared into the next room and then flew out an open window. I work at sea. Last month we came into dry dock to carry out refit and repairs. Dry dock is when a ship is brought into a lock, the gates closed and all the water pumped out leaving the ship high and dry on the blocks, thus allowing repairs slash inspections etc. of the underside of the hull. Next to us was an old military frigate being broken down for scrap. She had arrived about two weeks prior to us. Once the frigate was on the blocks and dry, all of the crew left the old girl to her fate. A sad sight, but that's how these things go. Once all the sensitive stuff had been removed, the dock workers were free to go on. The dock foreman, John went on board first with a camera to take pictures of work areas. He took a couple of hundred all in all. This was one of them. He later sent all of the pics to his boss, who upon seeing this one, called John straight away asking who is the guy with the axe at the edge of the camera flash. John had no idea. He never saw anyone. The area where this picture was taken was in a cross alleyway, deep inside the ship. He was going around with a torch and a camera. When he'd go to take a picture, he would turn off the torch, leaving him in total darkness, snap the shot, turn the torch back on and be on his way. Due to the fact that it was a military vessel the police were called. A search was carried out but no one was found. There was one way on and off the ship, and that was by a gangway covered by CCTV. You couldn't jump over the side as it was a 25-meter drop onto concrete. No one was seen to leave the ship after John had taken a photo. I am a skeptic. Maybe it's a trick of the flash reflecting off something, but if you really zoom in you can just make out the FS face, ear, collar of his jacket and the axe in a meaty fist. Now it could be John blowing smoke up my ass, but when he was telling the story he seemed genuinely rattled. And the guy in the pic looks nothing any of the other workers we met at the dock. If someone who is handy with cleaning up pictures, I'd be really interested to see what you can pull out of it. And before anyone asks, I'm not going to name the ship or even where she is, as I'm not sure if I'm supposed to have a picture of the innards of a military vessel. This gave me serious goosebumps. Needless to say, I did not go on board for a look. Eva Trent had fallen asleep when she awoke to a buzzing sound. Opening her eyes she was horrified to find two strange creatures standing on either side of her bed. The entity to her right was about 7-8 feet tall, weighed about 300 pounds, 
had apparently no clothing and seemed to have either crocodile or snake-type skin. The creature to her left was identical in appearance but smaller in height and weight. They seemed to be communicating in a chirping manner. Each of the entity's eyes glowed. Eva quickly discovered that she was unable to move. As she stared at the two creatures she found that either one or both were giving her instructions telepathically. The nature of this was seemingly for her to create mentally visual scenes of various kinds and then they proceeded to distort that particular pleasant scene in a perverse manner. Apparently the creatures were intent not only to observe her emotional reaction, but also possibly to feed off the energy that was produced. After a while Eva began to mentally resist the mind manipulation and began to pray earnestly. A short time later she fell back to sleep. The next morning the witness found five of her music tapes grossly distorted as if extreme heat had been applied. However no evidence of fire or odor was present. I was walking on the hill with my two Labradors when, out of nowhere, they went into a frenzy. They ran in circles, growling and snapping at the air, until they eventually collapsed to the ground, tails tucked beneath them. Bewildered, I scanned the surroundings and spotted a huge creature at a distance to the side. It appeared translucent, as I could see the grass of the hill through its body, but it was covered in long, charcoal-colored hair. Oddly, it left no trace on the grass. The creature had elongated, glowing red slits for eyes, nose-like holes, thick lips, and stood well over 10 feet tall on two legs. Filled with terror, I began to pray, and after a few moments, the creature slowly faded out of sight. I hastily left the hill, with my two dogs whimpering close behind me. I was asleep on the couch at my girlfriend's house, surrounded by pitch-black darkness. Suddenly, a dark figure materialized in the hallway. It had a human-like shape and appeared even darker than the surrounding darkness. The figure's head reached the ceiling, slightly bending forward as if constrained by the low height. I lay there, struggling to comprehend what my eyes were witnessing. Attempts to speak proved futile as no words emerged from my mouth. Even my attempts to yell resulted in nothing more than a whisper. The room grew colder as the figure glided forward with an eerie grace. I desperately tried to move, but my body refused to obey, except for an involuntary tremble. The silhouette entered the living room, navigating the walls while keeping its head turned towards me. I followed its movements, transfixed, as it passed behind the stove and through the stovepipe as if nothing obstructed its path. The dark figure drew nearer and nearer to the couch where I lay, now positioned right beside it. Staring at the figure, an overwhelming sense of pure evil engulfed me. My mind went numb, and tears welled up in my eyes. Gradually, laughter echoed in the distance, a malevolent, otherworldly laughter. It grew louder, resembling a gathering of people engaged in a chaotic party with multiple conversations overlapping. Amidst the laughter, I heard a high-pitched woman's voice say. We scared him to death. In that moment, my mind turned to prayer. Summoning all my strength, I cried out, God, help me. Miraculously, the dark apparition began to fade until it vanished completely from my sight. 
The chilling coldness in the room was replaced by the comforting warmth radiating from the stove. It was late night in late October early November of 1975 I was a 10 year old child. At that time I was going through a late bedwetting phase and remember I was determined to end that embarrassment. I awoke for the second or third night in time to relieve myself and remember being happy and proud that I caught it in time again. As my eyes creaked open slightly I saw movement in the room and at least what I thought were African American kids in my room moving around. I remember thinking that the only thing they could steal of any value was my prized small black and white TV that was on my dresser next to my bed. As you can imagine at this time my heart was pounding through my chest and just wanted them to take the TV and leave. I creaked my eyes open ever so slightly as not to be noticed and was shocked to realize that they weren't afros, which were common at that time, but were whole heads. I can't really express my thoughts of that instant realization when I saw who was really in the room at that time other than how in a nanosecond I went from, there's no such things as aliens to oh, my god they're real to what do they want? At that time there was no such things as greys or anything similar to what has been so defined into pop culture today. Being late October early November there was a harvest moon and I had a fairly large picture window in my room which lead to some fair amount of ambient room lighting which I shared with my 5 year old brother who slept in an adjacent bed next to mine. During this event I was creaking my eyes open enough as not to be noticed, laying on my back when I woke up and my bed covers were at my waist. All I wanted was to get my bed cover up to my head so I was ever so slowly and methodically creeping them up during this entire event. As not to be noticed. There was a larger one that stood against the wall directly across from the foot of my bed that just stared at me. There was another knelt down on the opposite side of my brother's bed and what I thought at the time was that he was doing something to his arm. On my head at the time my mind was reeling. My parents' room was directly behind me and if I screamed my father would come running in. I remember thinking that the one next to my brother I was taller than and equated him to being in my grade remember I was 10. So if he came over to me my big plan was to jump up and dive on him and scream for my dad. The one against the wall just standing there I remember as being a grade or two older than me and he would probably do something before my dad to get in. I remember thinking I could end the whole debate that are we alone in the universe and the weight of that thought being succumbed to he's killing my brother and not being able to muster the internal strength to do something. My next thought was that if he comes over to me he can't put a needle in me so I started to tear up and that diffused my sight to what was happening in the room. Then the one that was knelt next to my brother got up and came at me pure horror as my eyes were teared and he rounded my brother's bed and in one motion knelt down on his right knee and in one motion opened his toolkit and kind of flipped and twisted his left wrist and reached in. At that very moment I couldn't hold it anymore and thought needle. And I made audible pre-cry wail. The face that the creature made still haunts me today. Honesty. It's the same face people make when they make a surprise mistake a eek I did something embarrassing facial expression. His mouth was just a slit so when he made that expression his face rippled and wrinkled like a old man. Immediately whatever he was taking out of his box which was a really weird shape then but not now, it was, hexagonal with a diagonal opening and handle, put it back and got up and they marched out. 
Again another part of this is memory that has crept me out is how they moved like the military and moved or better said marched out of my room. I was shocked and with unreal timing as I looked down the hallway when they passed my parents room two more came out and filed in line which such precision and marched down the hall and all turned down the stairs out of my sight. Again I must stress the timing was if they were one. Needless to say I didn't sleep the rest of the night. My younger brother was fine in the morning, and no one in my family knew anything of the night's event. I lived near a large metropolitan area at the time and our house was the only house surrounded by 260 acres of woods. I only told a handful of people since then and find it very difficult and seriously doubt many of these accounts I read of abductions myself. Ironic isn't it? They were very, very real, and I wish I dreamt it, but I didn't. My impression then and my life of the events of that night is that these beings are cold and indifferent to us, basically they are not our enemies but most certainly aren't our friends. There might be a very good reason our government has kept this secret for so long. Being that I live on the coast of MS, Hate all you want but just know that south of I-10 is nothing like the typical stereotype which that in itself is far off as well, I have been on and around the water my entire life. I have many stories of crazy things and experiences happening while being on the water such as dealing with bad weather, lightning storms, water spouts, high seas, etc., which can be awesomely frightening but the craziest things I have seen have happened while running slash working on fishing charter boats. The one that always sticks with me, and I would also say the most eye-opening, occurred back in 2010 when the Deepwater Horizon oil rig blew and began spewing oil into the Gulf of Mexico. BP, after realizing to a certain extent how vast the spill was, began a program that allowed owners of boats to register and participate in the cleanup of the coastline. Side note. Those that were lucky enough to be accepted into the program sometimes took advantage of an awesome opportunity to do something good for the environment and made some serious money from it while at the same time preventing others from getting into the program who would have actually helped, that's somewhat mentioned later but overall is a story for another discussion, so being that the water that I had basically grown up on was being destroyed, I couldn't just sit back and not do anything. I went and got hazmat certified. For this particular instance, among other certifications and through certain contacts I first started working on a 127 feet charter boat, this boat normally will go out to the Chandelure Islands located off the coast of Louisiana for several days slash nights and drop skiffs in the water where clients were guided around the islands to fish. Also I would suggest if anyone has the opportunity to go out to these islands, do it. It's incredible there and the fishing is always on point. Back to story. I was working on this boat for about two weeks and then was transferred to an offshore division that consisted of about 10 to 15 boats. These boats by the way were strictly personal fishing and commercial charter boats with the largest being 57 feet and an average price of around $100,000 and a couple worth well over a $1 million conservatively. Our job was to leave at 6am and go out and look for oil or any marine life, etc. that may have been impacted by the spill. If we found oil, crude, oil slicks, or anything else out of place or not normal we'd log it, take pictures, and report it. For about a month we were only finding slicks. 
One day we went out about 120 miles and I'll never forget the sights or smells that day. The crude, we called it mud because that is exactly what it looked like, was everywhere and ridiculously thick, on average 6 inches and in some places up to 1 foot. It was like a super thick putty and to be honest is actually really hard to describe. To put this into perspective though, if you have ever been mud riding or seen a truck get stuck in mud, that's exactly what it was like to these boats but out on the water and a lot worse. This, over time, destroyed the boat's hulls among other things causing significant damage. We were the first group to find the crude and report it coming in that close to shore. Also during this time, we found a life jacket belonging to one of the guys who actually worked on the oil rig. Words honestly cannot describe what that was like. It was a very surreal moment to say the least. So we eventually get back to shore and that's when things start to change. The operation had now shifted to how the hell are we going to clean this up? And what the hell are we going to do with it? It wasn't until this point when we all realized how serious this was, not only for the coastline but for the environment as a whole. The next morning at the dock we noticed that pallets of skimmers and absorbent boom had been dropped off. We were to use the skimmers to round up as much crude as we could, tie off the skimmers into a circle, and place the boom together with the crude inside. That would then be brought to Deacon stations by another division who was assigned that job, these were the shrimp boats. Reminder, our job originally was to just spot, find, take pictures, and report. Not necessarily handle the oil if all possible. To sum up how that operation went. It was complete shit and that's being nice. It got to the point where instead of myself being the only one who could technically handle the crude on my boat, everyone else working the boats eventually ended up in type suits handling this foreign-ass toxic substance in 100 plus degree temperatures for 12 plus hours a day. Side note, each boat had to have at least one hazmat certified person on board at all times who was supposed to be the only person handling the crude. Also only four people were allowed to work on each boat in our division. We also ended up getting stranded twice by the shrimpers who decided to call a day at lunchtime leaving us with no way to move the crude while also not allowing us to leave because we couldn't just leave the rounded up crude unattended. Yay! Absolutely miserable. Nobody could ever have imagined what we were getting into, and along with that, BP themselves had no idea what they were getting into in their claims of being prepared and were on top of this with all available resources. Blah blah blah. Was completely overshadowed by the fact that they truly did not know how to run and contain an operation of this size and magnitude and that was seen day in and day out. This became a day-to-day -day challenge up until the point when my shady-ass boss got caught being greedy charging BP for every miscellaneous thing he bought which caused all his boats to be shut down. His first check was said to be upwards of $450,000 and that's rounding it off. During this time both the employers, the boat owners especially, and employees were making some serious money. What ruined it were the greedy bastards who just couldn't get enough. This is turn caused less boats that were actually doing it for the right reasons from being able to make a change out on the water. In total we worked a little over three months. Going out every day and seeing schools of dead fish, dead sea turtles, and the water that you grew up on literally turned into a mud pit, as that's exactly what it was, was disheartening to say the least. 
Though all that happened and we dealt with so much, there was one time where we saw that what we were doing might have been helping just a little bit. On one of our last trips, we were about 20 or so miles out past the barrier islands when we could see from a distance what looked like the water boiling and had a red, orange, and yellow color to it. When we got close, we realized it was a school of thousands of redfish and jack creval that stretched as far as we could see and was about 100 or so yards wide. Being in the middle of that, surrounded by these fish, just cannot be described with words. It was incredible and that was the one moment that gave us hope that what we were doing was not a waste and that we were in fact doing something worthwhile. Still to this day, it is the most incredible thing I have seen on the water aside from the oil spill itself. Lastly, just to throw this out there, there is still tons of oil out in the Gulf regardless of what people say. It's just buried in on the sea floor due to the so-called dispersants that BP claimed would break the oil up. It still can be found on the islands, beaches, and marshes. The marine life is just now getting back to normal again in the past two years and it's only going to get better as long as some shit like this don't happen again. There is so much more that I could talk about from this time. Ranging from the oil itself to the things BP supposedly did and did not do. That's all for another day though. Again, sorry for the long post, but this one experience is always the one I come back to when asked about things I have seen on the water and with this thread I felt it should be mentioned.